Today's reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 1. Uh, we're going to read the whole chapter, and it starts on page 271 of your church Bibles. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zephite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from the town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son. Then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk, and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was, I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something. Her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. When her husband, Elkanah, went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, 
an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he, he shall be given over to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Please keep your Bibles open. I think Debbie and the children are going to go around uh, their little corner for their uh, special version of 1 Samuel chapter 1. We've got uh, uh, the grown-ups version here. And at the end of it... Uh, when I uh, haven't made sense, Debbie will come and explain uh, what I meant to say. She always does that better than I do when the children come and report what they've learnt. Now, if there are questions or anything that you want to say in um, the light of uh, this little uh, talk, this little explanation, then when I finish talking, you get a chance to say whatever you like and ask whatever you like. So that's just to tell you that uh, if it's completely uh, unclear, um, it might get better when I've finished. Well, let's start with uh, an interesting question. Can you always believe what you see? Is seeing always believing? That's an interesting question. Generally, the answer is yes. What you see is what you get is an expression that we have. But the Bible opens our eyes to see that actually that's generally not true. Or if it is true, well, it's true of unimportant things. You see what a person may be like outwardly, but that's not the person that you're looking at. There's much more to the person than what you can see outwardly. You see what's on the surface. But when it comes to deeper reality, uh, seeing is usually misleading. Uh, There are generally things under the surface and more things on the surface than we see when we're just looking on the surface. So seeing is generally not believing. And 1 Samuel is a book in the Bible that makes that point. As we go on, you meet some very tall, good-looking, impressive blokes who are a dead loss. And you see a famous giant called Goliath and a very puny little boy called David. And you put your money and your bets on Goliath if you're going by what you see. And that theme of seeing is misleading is actually here right at the very start of the book with this uh, lady you read about called Hannah. So you don't need to look at the guys, the Goliaths and the Davids. You can look at the girls, Penina and Hannah, and you ask the question, which of these two is blessed by God? And verse 2 will give you the answer. It's a no contest. Penina had children, Hannah had none. Clearly, Penina is the one who's blessed, except when you get to the end of the chapter, you might think differently. Because seeing is misleading. 
Now, both women are wives of this one man, Elkanah, and given that he's not the main character in the story, in fact, he's going to disappear from view altogether fairly soon, it's just surprising, therefore, that we get so much information about him, about his family, who his dad, his granddad, his great-dad was, and where he comes from, and we get all that about this certain man. He's pretty obscure. He's just a certain man, but we get all this information about him. And we're told that uh, he is an Ephraimite, or if you've got uh, the uh, English Standard Version, another very, very good version, it says that he is an Ephrathite. It depends on whether you're looking at the family or the place where the family comes from. Now, as I said, he's an obscure man. Uh, We're just told he is a certain man, uh, nothing special. And he comes from this uh, uh, obscure place called Ephratha. Has anyone heard of Ephratha? Mm. Mm, well, you may not have heard of Ephratha now, but hey, places can change their names, can't they? And if you wind forward very quickly, 1,000 years, and you turn very quickly to page 933, to that place that uh, uh, Bim is telling us about. It's Micah chapter 5, verse 2. You might just pick out Ephrathah's other name. Okay, so off to page 933, and the prophet Micah, and chapter 5, verse 2, says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So Ephratha, you might know it by its other name, <coughs> Bethlehem. And in that uh, neck of the woods lives this very sad woman called Hannah. Now, zoom out from Hannah for a minute, and you see that she's a sad woman in a very sad country. It started off with great promises. Moses led them into this new country from where they were slaves in Egypt, and they get this new promised land, a wonderful place, but it's not going well. At the time, it's ruled by a group of people called the Judges. So this sad woman, sad country, is run by judges. Now, judges, not because they sit in courtrooms all day, judges because they visit judgment on the enemies of God's people. That's their job. But at the moment, uh, the country is uh, going downhill. And the reason why it's going downhill, you find out again and again, would you believe it's, it's in the book of Judges? And it tells you again and again what the matter is. I want you to be detectives and see if you can spot it. So first, we'll go to uh, the downhill slope and Judges chapter 17, verse 6. Who's got good eyes to read it? Someone? Okay. Keep that in mind. Tell me if you... This is one to Judges 18, chapter 1. In those days... 
seeking a place of their own where they might settle, and then not come to their full inheritance. Okay? Now, chapter 19, verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king. Now, a Levite. And the story goes on in... I can't let you read that story. It's too gruesome. And then, Judges, chapter 125. And what was the problem? In those days, Israel had no king. Have you noticed any connections? Why things are going downhill? Uh, um, even Verona, see... <laughs> in those days they had no king everyone was a law unto themselves therefore this new wonderful country that God promised them isn't what it should be and it isn't what it should be for uh, the country and it's not where it should be for Hannah either because in this new country God promised Moses in uh, actually not Judges 21-25 it's actually Deuteronomy, sorry, you have to change that. Deuteronomy chapter 7, uh, verse 14. God had promised his people, you will be blessed more than any other people. None of your men or women will be childless. Nor will even, even your livestock will have kids, but things aren't what they should be. Hannah hasn't got any children. The place isn't where it should be. And so therefore those two situations, the sad country and the sad woman in the country, uh, they're connected. Neither of them where they should be, and yet connected in another way. Because God's answer to the crisis of a country without a leader, or you might say a sheep without a shepherd, God's answer happens to come from a woman whose husband happens to have links with Bethlehem. The answer to a leaderless country, sheep without shepherd, comes from a woman with a husband with links to Bethlehem. And therefore, actually, when you read of childless women in the Bible, it's really worth... Uh, doing this, letting all the flashlights come on whenever you read of uh, women uh, without children or about to have an unexpected birth. So that the whole nation of Israel started off with a barren woman called Sarah. Couldn't have kids for years and years. She was well old. And then the baby comes. Whenever God is going to do something new, a barren woman has an unexpected child. That's true of the 12 tribes of Israel. When they took shape as a 12-tribe nation, that came into being through a childless woman called Rachel in that case. Another time later on, uh, there was a great deliverer the nation had, a man called Samuel. Now, Samuel came from a woman who had been barren. And now we've got Hannah. And then much later, a woman called Elizabeth. Another barren woman would have a child who would be John the Baptist. In other words, before God is going to do anything special, a, a woman has an unexpected child. You might think I've left someone off the list. I've done it deliberately because I want to keep you in suspense, but I'll tell you who he is when we get to Christmas. <laughs> now here's a crisis in which uh, Hannah prays to her great God 
But let me take the eyes off Hannah for a minute and focus on her great God instead. And it might be surprising, you may not have heard this word before, but let's call him a sovereign God. A sovereign God because that word tells us that he is in control of absolutely everything that happens. And you see that straight away in 1 Samuel chapter 1. In verse 5, you see not just that Hannah didn't have any children, but if you look at verse 5 closely, uh, the Lord had closed her womb. In case you missed that point, you can read the same thing again in verse 6. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. That's the reason why she was childless. That's the reason why every single detail uh, it works out as it does. The Lord is sovereign. Now, we don't always understand God's sovereign rule, but it's important to see it. We may not understand why she is childless, but it's important to see that it's the Lord that is in control of that. But seeing God's control like that in all the little details doesn't mean that we're like the Muslims and we say, ah, will of Allah, nothing we can do about it. Just you have to accept it as it is. Whatever will be, will be. My word, you're dating yourself by nodding your head at that point. <laughs> now, Hannah doesn't just simply accept that God is sovereign and leave it at that. She pray, accepts that God is sovereign and she prays for things to change. That's why the Bible tells us that God is so in control. It is so that we then go to him when we understand that. God being sovereign is a truth that is designed to bring us to him, into relationship with him. When you realize fully how sovereign God is, you've got nowhere else to go but to him. That's important for us to understand because people say that when they hit a crisis, it shuts down prayer. But God in his sovereignty, you see from this chapter, creates a crisis as a way in to prayer. So crisis is never a sign that God hates you. Crisis is a sign that he loves you and is drawing you in. Because he is sovereign and has created it that way. And therefore, it's important for us to do what Hannah did. Which is not just to understand that God is sovereign, but to understand that the sovereign God is good. So we keep the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God together. All right. Uh, keep the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God together. To the point that even the broken heart of a random woman matters to him so much that when she speaks, he hears. Keep the goodness of God close to the sovereignty of God and keep them together. So Hannah goes to him in uh, verse 11. And she prays, addressing him as the sovereign God. 
as the Lord Almighty in verse 11. But she doesn't go to him to argue with him about what he's done. She speaks of herself as your servant in verse 11. So she's got God's sovereignty and her response to that, spot on. But she also has God's goodness spot on because she asks him for a son. And when she finally gets one, she goes uh, to Eli, she hands him over to Eli in verse 27, and she is full of thankfulness, not resentment. Because God has used his sovereignty to reveal his goodness to her. So she's not resentful about that, and I've got to hand it with my son. She is fully thankful. In fact, you don't know how thankful she is because uh, we got the English version. Uh, the Hebrew makes a point uh, by using the word ask to stress that she got what she asked for. So it's actually used seven times, the word ask, in these couple of verses, 27 and 28, which uh, we don't pick up in our English translation. But verse 27 goes something like this. For this child I asked, and God gave me my asking, which I asked from him, and I also have given back what was asked to God. All the days that he lives, he is the one asked of God. In other words, there's a lot of asking and that's the reason why I'm here because God has given me what I've asked for. Now, it's not good English and therefore that's the reason why we have the smoother version on our laps. Actually, it's not good Hebrew either. But it's very good gratitude. If you understand how the sovereign God works, he controls everything so that we are drawn to him in relationship and prayer in order that we might be filled with thankfulness as a result. So in this strange world that we live in, God's sovereignty and this chapter attributes barrenness to God and then attributes a pregnancy to God who is sovereign in creating both because of his goodness. Now, how does that help us? Well, if you're new to church, uh, I'm hoping that you keep coming these next uh, few weeks as we go through 1 Samuel just to help you to see better. Learn how to see by coming to church. Because looking at the surface of things is what we do if we don't pick up our Bibles, and seeing can be misleading. So, for example, you might look at a crisis that happens to you in your life, and you might conclude there is no God. Or you might look at a crisis from now on, the way Hannah looked at hers, and see God's sovereignty creating a crisis in life, so that we might come to him in the same way that Hannah did, bowing before him as our almighty God and seeing yourself as your servant. A crisis is meant to have that effect on us.
the way it did on Hannah. So let the Bible give you new sight in order that it might give you a new relationship with God who cares for you. And you can start by talking to him the way that Hannah did. So the crisis that says there is no God may be the crisis that God has designed specially to bring you to him. Really helpful for us to pick that up. What happens if you're a church vet, a church veteran, and you put in the hours and uh, you've got all the badges on your Boy Scout sleeve for going to different churches maybe and growing up all your life in them? Well, we need to look at uh, what uh, Eli uh, didn't see. He saw, in verses 12 to 14, what he thought was a drunk woman. Now, Eli was very churchy. He was a priest. But his churchness led him to write off too easily someone because he thought she was drunk. He thought she was far from God, but actually, she was there to seek him. I think it's very easy for us church people to get judgmental in that kind of way. And sight can be misleading, especially religious sight, when we grow up and judge others. It wasn't that she was drunk, it was that she was a seeker. Careful what you see. And what happens if you are a believer... Uh, what's the word for us? I think it's really important for us to keep sovereignty and God's goodness very, very close together. There are lots of times we need to do that in life. Lots of crises in which we will need to do that in life. But especially I think it's important that we do that in life as a church, given the work we're here on this estate to do. We can go to someone's door and think that we're rejected because God has rejected them. And therefore, that's the reason why they have closed their hearts against God. It's because God has shut their hearts and is sovereign in uh, causing that to happen. Whereas if we keep God's goodness close to God's sovereignty, then what it will lead us to do is to cry out to him that the sovereign God will change their hearts. They may have been a barren person, but that's not to say they can't be a pregnant person. They may be appearing to be a closed person. It's not to say that God can't open them to him. That's why I want to suggest to the team again and again and again that it's important for us when we meet people on our estate to say, if I could put it like this, more words to God than we say to them. In the sense that we cry out to God again and again and again and again for them, even if our, our conversation with them has been uh, uh, fairly brief. So those people who you saw today and who we visited and a whole range of different reactions this afternoon, as there always is. Helpful for us, isn't it, to walk away and say, now I must remember that God is good. 
I must be praying for this person who said no to me, the person who shut the door, the person who didn't seem to be uh, open to God. Don't take it that God has written them off. Cry to him that God will perhaps even create a crisis, if that's what he takes, to bring them into relationship with himself. Let's pray that God will do that, and then we'll have a question or two uh, that you might want to ask. Let's pray first. Uh, Father in heaven, we bow before your sovereign greatness as we begin to study this book. We marvel that the God who works to save a nation in crisis is not too aloof to save a broken-hearted woman in crisis. Help us to store these lessons in our hearts that we might turn to you both aware of your sovereign power and aware of your great goodness that we might respond to you aright. And by your Holy Spirit, use these studies to teach us about the start of a journey that will lead to Bethlehem and to the king who will be the shepherd that your sheep so greatly need. And we pray for that king to be made known to us as we study this book, as we want to study his glory. And so we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.